The Academic Podcast Agency. The most impressive way to approach New York, an awe-inspiring sight. Miss Liberty holds high her welcoming torch, offering freedom and peace to the oppressed of other lands. The immigration gateway, Ellis Island, is nearby. Whereabouts are we? Uh, right now, we're in Manhattan in New York. We're walking up Broad Street. So why here and why now? Uh, so I came to the US um, to engage with the, the, the Black Lives Matter network and to discover a little bit more about what it actually meant on the ground to be part of the movement and also watch it and observe it grow and uh, connect the work that I do in the UK to um, what's been done here. Harlem, a large section in the northern part of the city. Here lives most of the colored population. Not always prosperous, but seemingly always happy. Whatever they do, they keep smiling through. Who taught you to hate the smiling. texture of your hair? I still it wants have people to pay attention to injustice. Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? The Black Lives Matter. Don't trust the police. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. In March 2016, I visited my good friend and colleague Nat Jeffers in New York City. So I'm Natalie Jeffers and I am uh, an activist, an artist and uh, an occasional academic. <laughs> Over the last few years, Nat has become increasingly involved in the movement for the liberation of black lives. Organizing and campaigning across both sides of the Atlantic, she is respected as a co-creator of Black Lives Matter UK, acting as a bridge between the US network and its British collaborators. And this episode of The Glass Beak Game is an inquiry into how the consequences of race and racism have informed the institutions and cultural normalities that dominate all of our lives. The audio you will hear has been collected over a four-month period, and will introduce you to a number of people that have dedicated their lives to dismantling what is sometimes called structural or state violence. Nat's brother Luke was found dead at his home in May of 2015, a death she directly attributes to the undervaluing of black lives by the UK government. So he died as a result of um, state violence. And, and, and state institutional or bureaucratic violence. Somebody who's not valued enough to be anything more than a policy change on a piece of paper. The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is... Glass Bead Game. The Glass Bead Game. My dear friends. Inform. Investigate. So in the spirit of transparency, how do we know each other? Uh, we know, we've known each other for many years through university, though we all sort of met through social 
connections and uh, a little smattering of like lesbian love. <laughs> Not between you and I, but our <laughs> friends. And um, and then that's it. We built it from there, really. I think we should clear that up. So <laughs> in the name also of, uh, of transparency, uh, Natalie is female, pronoun she. Yes. I am uh, Will, male, pronoun he. Yes. Uh, we are not lesbian lovers. <laughs> I am white and you are black. I am. So let's start from that point. What, what's the significance of that? What does that mean? You being white and me being black? Yeah. Um, it means that we have very different histories and heritage. Um, it means that we have... Uh, some shared and some different cultures. Um, it means that we have a different way to see um, the world around us because of the way that we engage with it and are allowed to engage with it. And then how our cultures that are coming into our home affect us and language and smells, sights, sounds, foods, all of these things are, are what build your character and your culture. And so we're both British but we both have had different experiences because of our race, but also of our gender. But there's been moments where we've also got great synergies and connections in who we are as people through, you know, our love of conversation and getting into stuff and creating things and just our love of who we are as people and that we have a shared compassion for humanity and... and um, and just the love that grows beyond those boundaries that are set up by society. So I think that it's a really great thing that as a friendship and also as like creative partners, we're just trying to dismantle this a little bit and have a conversation around it. And I think everybody needs to do that. So I'm uh, Alan Lester, I'm Professor of Historical Geography at the University of Sussex and I work on British colonialism, British Empire in the 19th century. What, what does the term structural violence mean to you? I don't think of structural violence as specific instances of you know, physical violence. It includes those instances, but it's a much broader spectrum. There's a structural violence in any system uh, which assumes that a whole group of people by their very characteristics, uh, should be subjected to various forms of civilising um, development, which you yourself feel you, yourself to be exempt from. I wonder how you feel about this idea of the US as an empire, as an imperial force. Do you recognise that? Absolutely, yeah. The US being both a republic and an empire at once. And the empire side of America's history um, has been written out of the story in the same way that the sort of black and Asian engagement in British history has been written out of our national story. Because it's a republic, its anti-imperial origins, you know, as a revolt, its very origins in a revolt against the British empire, have always been emphasised as an enduring American trait. But ever since the late 19th century, um, the US government has acted in completely imperial ways. It was a formal colonising power in the Philippines and in Hawaii in Puerto Rico uh, and other sites. Um, and right the way through, there's a great book by the geographer Neil Smith on this, um, America's 20th century um, history, there have been various attempts to shape 
global influence for America through more formal imperial means, as, as the British did, actually invading and occupying and setting up client governments, but also through more informal means. And in many ways, uh, America's 20th century presence parallels the informal empire that Britain had in the 19th century. You often get popular historians writing or appearing in the media bemoaning the fact that everybody criticises empire. You know, there's this left-wing critique of empire and that's the dominant narrative. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, those, those who gain most access to the media and who sell the most sort of popular narratives of empire tend to be those who are nostalgic or, to a certain degree, amnesiac about empire and the way that it imposed uneven forms of exploitation on the world. The most systematic cost that people often draw attention to is slavery. But even there, in the popular narrative, there's a, a let-out clause for Britons because it was Britain that pioneered the abolition of slavery. So yes, we were guilty of it once, but we were the ones who pioneered its abolition. So you know, we're let off the hook. But I think critically, you know, if we come to, to the present, one of the, the legacies of this period of debate is that um, there was no argument made uh, against slavery which recognised the fundamental equality of African people. So the expectations of anti-slavery activists were that you needed to bring about emancipation, you needed to free enslaved people so that Britons could lead them by a better example to civilization. They could make them more like us. I grew up in a, a working class council estate, you know, in South Birmingham in the 80s at the height of Thatcher. So there was this institutional racism that might not have been like calling us names explicitly, but all the policies that were being created and the resources that were being distributed were racist policies. And now we have the proof of that by the memos that were released by the National Archive in England um, that Oliver Letwin, who's still in government today, still informing policy, still the right-hand man to the leader of the, of the Conservatives, he wrote a memo to Thatcher after the uprising in the 80s that I grew up around and said not to invest money in black communities because we would only spend it on disco drugs and Rastafarian crafts. Now... I'm not saying them three things don't exist in the black community and are not enjoyed. But what I'm saying is that, that was a, that's evidence of systemic and institutional racism at that high level that then feeds into policy making that stop resources coming in to our local community. And that's been proven. And still, like I then grew up in that where there was very little resources that was provided by the state. And I'm still seeing that now in my community. The government are stripping away now under the guise of austerity and demonising the most vulnerable people in society who are disproportionately black or brown. Okay, so we're now going out into the beer garden above Nat's office. I share a space here um, because of the work that I, I do in community education. It's one of the biggest independent voices in New York, it is here, and this is at the Commons in Brooklyn. And um, yeah, it's great. And so now we're up on the rooftop, and uh, it's pretty cool. 
I'm a white man of privilege, you know, but I am unlikely to say proudly to anybody, A, that I am white, or B, that I am middle class. Right, and that, I think, is the thing, is you are unable to claim pride where we say black power and that's a sense of pride white people can't do the same and so that is interesting in itself but you don't get to feel pride in white power because of what white power actually means which is oppression whereas black power means emancipation it means um, reimagining you know yourself and visioning for the future and aspiring to something different and it's moving from the state of where the position that you are at a state level to something that transcends that and because white people come from a position of privilege on the hierarchical scale to have any more power <laughs> you know to take any more power connect yourself to power actually means that you want to dominate more whereas black power is not about dominating it's about reclaiming like your identity that was stripped away and it then that's all right and it's and the thing is black power is not for white people it is for black people and and this is again what I would say to a lot of white liberals and I have to some friends and family loving black doesn't mean you hate white and we've got to get over that. It's a really simple concept to understand. But still, on a daily basis, we're constantly having to mediate it. So I say something empowering or something that is unapologetically black, and then I have to follow that. You have to then go, oh, but that doesn't mean that I don't like you. Or, oh, well, that doesn't mean that we want to, you know, kill all whiteies. You know, <laughs> we're not going to start lynching you like you did to us. Like, and I think it's a reflection on that history, you know, that, that memory of history where you, to you, white power meant killing people and, and, and striking them up a pole and doing all various things. That doesn't, that's not what it means, black power, that's not what it means to us. Well, if we're talking about structural violence, you know, then white power certainly still does mean that, doesn't it? But why? Like, we are en masse reimagining the future and it's a, and it's a black radical tradition. You always have visioned and reimagined your position and where you are in society from the very first slaves who were running away and working on plans of mass emancipation. And all of those things were visionary. They were reimagining themselves and where they could be. So why can't white people do that but reimagine where they fit in a in a world where there's more equity between black, brown and indigenous people. Why can't white pride actually be reframing what whiteness means? As Nat's guest, I was invited to attend a Black Lives Matter event she was co-organizing at the University of Massachusetts. Okay. Good morning, man. I'm Will. Okay. All right, man. This event included people from all over the United States, hosted by the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies. You say good morning. You say good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're just traveling to uh, Amherst, to the University of Massachusetts. Uh, 
um, for a retreat, make some connections and build and create together and see what we can come out with strategy and approaches for the movement. Uh, there's going to be about 45 of us coming from all across the US um, and then myself from the UK. We're not free in the United States of America. Well, the mythos is it's the land of the free and the home of the brave or what have you, but there's actually a lot, a lot of cowardice in the United States about facing up to our problems, facing up to what's going on, and there is a lot of unfreedom. There is a great deal of repression and, and enslavement in a certain type of way uh, and of wrongful taking from people, from their labor, and, uh, and it's got to change. It's a situation that just has to change. I'm Amilkar Shabazz. I'm a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in the Department of Afro-American Studies. And I also have an appointment in the Chancellor's Office as an advisor on matters of diversity and excellence. What is this event? What kind of people have been attending? About 40 to 50 people coming together from across the, the country and beyond the United States to really take stock of where the struggle for freedom uh, in the United States is at. Uh, that, that may sound bizarre for people who are used to hearing the narrative of life in America, but if you pierce beneath the rhetoric, if you pierce beneath the this kind of uh, imaginary United States, we realize there are deep, deep problems here. There, there, there have been from the beginning, and uh, they, they do need attention. They do need to be addressed. The passage in 1964 of the Civil Rights Act and the passage in 1965 of the Voting Rights Act, these were crowning pieces of legislation that moved the United States in, in, in a new direction, a direction away from essentially an apartheid society until about the middle of the 1960s. There were actual laws on the books that made it, for example, illegal for a black person, a person of African descent, to marry a person of European descent. That did not change until 1966. This then is, is what a, a lot of the world outside knows, that there was this upheaval. It was a long-standing process of struggle such that now blacks could vote and could, in, could indeed vote people into office. Blacks now could intermarry. Blacks could now not be discriminated for a job for which they were qualified solely on the basis of their, their appearance, their race, their color. And for many in 2008 then, it meant that those changes had reached a certain level that the society was now post-racial, that there were no more problems of race, there were no more problems uh, of racial disparities, but we know that is untrue. Find it in your body. And whatever move you need. Oh.
It was a time, a space, it was a, a, a gift from organisers to organisers. It was a space where we could have closed-door conversations and heal together and build together and create together, where normally we just need just constantly move in and you never get time to stop and breathe together with other people who are experiencing similar things to yourself. There's no strategy that we have put in place Good. that could yeah. allow us to say these are our goals as a collective, these are the people who have signed on. We may have different tactics and you know we may not agree with the 250 mile march but we still are going to mm-hmm. be collective yeah. and, and build collective power together. And it just reminds me of what uh, Baba Augustine said. He was like, you know, there are these Black Lives Matter organizations in Colombia, Venezuela, and Brazil, but mm-hmm. we in the United States haven't been able to solidify mm-hmm. a message, a, 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 a common message. In so, this retreat where we could get to know each other and share stories and also have intergenerational conversations. So we had Babuseku Adinga, who had been um, incarcerated for years in solitary confinement, and it was an amazing privilege to have him in the space and to share some of the knowledge from the Black Panthers and also what it means to sacrifice for a movement, you know, and the risks and the losses that are associated with it, but also the gains. My name is Sekou Abdullah Odinga. Lift every voice and sing. I am a Muslim. I am a semi-freed former political prisoner. I try to work now mostly trying to help free existing political prisoners. I did 33 years in prison myself for my political beliefs and act- activities. We thought that the Black Panther Party organization was probably a better vehicle for us to and to try to carry on Malcolm X's uh, legacy, his programs. Early part of 68, some of the Central Committee of the Black Panther Party came to New York and I was at one of the first meetings, or the first meeting, I'm not sure, but I know it was before the or before we actually established it in New York. And I decided I would join. And so that's how I became a, a part of the Black Panther Party. Just uh, <laughs> dealing with that whole subject of sacrifice, mm-hmm. when you ask that question, I mean, there's different levels of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. People, when they came in the movement, especially in the era I came in and in the level I come in, they, they sacrificed everything. That's right. What Malcolm talked about and what Martin talked about were two different things. The level of struggle, I mean. I mean, the commitment to struggle. What were you ready to commit? We talk about different dynamics when we talk about levels of struggle and levels of sacrifice. In general, I say that they both were ready to sacrifice everything did sacrifice everything. Teach. They sacrificed their lives. <clears throat> they sacrificed their wives, their children, and their children's, uh, children. uh, their children's children. Yes. So children. their children's children grew up without mm-hmm. their grandfather. A mm-hmm. oh, uh, uh, brilliant grandfather who would have been teaching them all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So that the sacrifice goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about sacrifice, they sacrificed it all. 
And we may have more political prisoners in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. Uh, when you start thinking about Guantanamo Bay and uh, Florence, Illinois, and the different state prisons around the country. So that's what I would want people to know and to understand that political prisoners exist in the U.S. They're being treated very badly. We have lost a number of them through medical neglect, and we have a number of them now that's uh, health, having health problems from medical neglect. You strike me as someone that kept the joy and kept your spirit alive. So, like, what, what did you do to do that after all those years during that time? Love. <coughs> love of the Creator. Love of my family. Love of the people. People who supported me. People who I've known. People who I haven't known. One of the things that I understand about being married to Sekou was when you talk about love, because you asked a question about relationships, from a historical perspective, I understand that this system has never been about black love, mm -hmm. black families, That's right. right, black survival. So understanding that, I knew that every time I went on a prison visit, that it was designed for me not to come back. My name is Dequi Keone Siddiqui. I am a mother and a grandmother. I am an activist on behalf of U.S.-held political prisoners and prisoners of war as uh, a member of the New York City chapter of the Jericho Movement for Amnesty and Recognition of U.S.-held political prisoners and prisoners of war. I'm a feminist, black feminist. I think that's important. So part of what, we, what is important is, and I've said this to other people, political education to politicize people. Because it's not enough to say, I don't like the way something is. It's understanding how that system is functioning to keep this machinery in place, to keep us separated, to keep us from inside and out. Right. For black folks, for the black nation to love themselves and each other is an act of resistance because we're taught through the propaganda, I mean, from, from the kidnapping of Africans, we've been taught to hate our skin color, hate our hair texture, the shape of our nose, that our culture and history was nothing and we were backwards and uncivilized. And so that has continued from 1619 until today. So today even young children look at videos, they look at movies, they look in books, and they don't see themselves reflected in any way that teaches them to love themselves. And so if you don't love, if you're taught to not love yourself, then by definition, it helps you to not be able to love someone else. And so I say that to love is an act of resistance because you are going against what the system perpetuates. And when it's intimate partner love, you know, we have more black people in America in prison, even though they're like less than 12% or something like 12% of the population, we make up more than half the prison population. So when you take fathers away from wives and children, you're destroying the black family, and they've been doing that since slavery. So that's why I talk about love is an act of resistance, because I can say I love you in a place that teaches me not to. Everything about this conference that I have been to this week 
Young people are murdered in the United States by um, a police officer or a white vigilante every 28 hours. There's some black man, woman, or child murdered in the streets, in their home, someplace in the United States. And people's spirit says there is something wrong with that. We're going to start with Mondo Wilanga. Kwesi Balagoon. Teddy Jahi. Bashir Hamid. Albert Noah Washington. Those are some of Assad's comrades who were murdered by state-sanctioned violence behind the wall as U.S. held political prisoners and prisoners of war. So we call their names to bring them in to the space to say their lives matter because they said black lives matter. So they've been criminalizing resistance and punishing people who resist from the first kidnapping, and they do it today. But resistance is a human right. The crimes are the crimes against humanity, that children are hungry, that, you know, people are not safe when they go outside. When you have representatives of the state that can kill you and shoot you with impunity, and it's just, that's a crime. We'd been planning Amherst for weeks, but after hearing Sonia Sanchez, it was a rallying call to stop chatting and and do the work and make that work have impact. Sometimes we deserve what we get, you know? And we deserve, we deserve what we get because at some point we don't break out of that crap that we've been taught already. We mouth the words, but we don't really believe the words. And for you to mouth the words, it's got to come from the gut. You know that? From the intestines, you know, from the heart, from the toe jam. It's got to come all the way up to here, to the mouth. And you've got to really say, I'm really trying to walk upright as a human being. So therefore, as a consequence, I will look at people and see what good is in them. And if I don't always see good in them, I would then try to talk to them about why it's much better to walk upright as a human being than to slither in dirt, you know, and disrespect, you know. And it's better for us not to talk against each other. That is the reality. And you never, never in any way could understand. I don't think it's possible for you to understand at some point that when you have Dear friends, when you have people who truly have looked into your heart and seen that as we walk on this earth, you change, you evolve. As you walk on this earth, the whole point of this is to look into other people's hearts also and to say simply, you're my sister, you're my friend. You know, you are the person that I have been looking for so I can tell you my dreams. So I can tell you my sorrows. So I can tell you. So you can wash me clean and say simply, 
We are one. We are two. <sighs> yeah, immense, immense. I never expected ever in my life to share a space with Sonia Sanchez but to hear her be so honest and and vulnerable and openly emotional and be sharing that that pain and that love for the movement after hearing that and yeah I was um really touched to the point of and it's just giving me goosebumps for me, the movement for Black Lives or the Black Liberation Movement is about healing from trauma. And there are many things that um, I'm learning through engaging more and more in the movement and also being able to bring to it as well from the experiences in my own family of how we have dealt with our trauma. How much um, has the experience of your brother's death, how much has that impacted upon the work that you do in the US and also in the UK? Family is the front line. It's when you're out there standing against state and institutional violence, um, you're taken to that place because of your personal connection to that oppression. So my brother was um, schizophrenic and had been on benefits since he was... 17, 18. His doctors said that he was schizophrenic and not fit for work, and yet they still deemed him fit for work. And then because he missed interviews, he was then sanctioned by the government for not adhering to the criteria of job seekers' allowance, and then all of his benefits were stopped. In the UK, this has happened to thousands of people, including child and elderly benefits, and they've all been hit. I've always been an activist, but now I will spend my entire life dismantling state and institutional violence and racism and looking at building alternative institutions and investing in black communities will be my entire life because I need to channel the energy gained and lost in losing Luke. When you think of the, the change agents out there, whether in, in the United Kingdom, whether in the United States, whether in Africa, Europe, how many were academics? Many of the great social transformations uh, that have taken place, the academy has largely been irrelevant. It hasn't been out trying to be engaged, trying to be at the service of, uh, of people fighting for their lives, fighting for social changes. Uh, we may benefit from it ultimately. In the actual work of it, we often find that academics are just, are not present. One thing I was certainly not aware of was quite how much the movement had aligned itself with a feminist cause, but also a transgender cause. Well, Will, for me and you both, I was born in a, a culture, in a society uh, that was extraordinarily patriarchal, uh, extraordinarily heterosexist, extraordinarily homophobic, extraordinarily anti-queer, and many of those unquestioned uh, attitudes 
toward people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered are now coming into question. What's common sense to us in the movement is now being shaped by the thinking and the practice and the experiences of the queer community, of people who have lived on the margins for, for, for too long now. Returning to the UK, I had the opportunity to talk with Whale Kasim about their experience of being a trans voice operating within the Black Lives Matter network. We should point out that we're in a, uh, a cafe just down from Victoria Station, um, which is why you have all the uh, barista noises going on downstairs. <laughs> so, as I understand it, your pronouns are they and them. Uh, whereas my pronoun would be he and him. What is the significance of, of gender identity in this way? And can it be considered political? I use it to reflect the fact that I don't identify um, as a man or a woman as they would usually be conceived in our society. I mean, I think from the very off, there's, uh, it has to be noted that a lot of the people in kind of leadership positions within Black Lives Matter are black queer women. So the three co-founders, Alicia Garza, um, Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi, are black queer women who are very much at the forefront of what's going on. And I think that's kind of led to an environment where black queer people of various descriptions have felt comfortable in taking part in the movement. It's a often commonly held prejudice that uh, black communities are um, less kind of accepting of queer people and trans people, and somehow more prone to tr uh, transphobia and homophobia and these kind of prejudices, which I think that coming together in the Black Lives Matter movement of black activism, but also the prioritising and kind of putting at the forefront the queer experiences uh, in that black movement uh, is a kind of a sign that that's not, that's not necessarily the case, not necessarily true. Uh, the black communities are somehow more hostile to being queer and expressions of queerness. Do you see um, any significant differences between the movement in the US and the movement in the UK? There's definitely questions for us in the in the UK, especially around anti-racist movements. Of um, what does what does race even mean in the UK context? Um, it kind of has a very particular history coming out of slavery, segregation, and the denial of civil rights in the US. But then there's the question in the UK of what is our colonial legacy? How is this kind of still present in our society today? Also, questions around who. What, what sort of anti-blackness, that anti-black racism is faced in the UK when there's perhaps been a kind of, possibly a closer relationship between people of colour from different backgrounds, especially the kind of, the kind of coming together of the black African Caribbean and South Asian communities and anti-racist movements during the 60s, 70s and even into the 80s. 
and which kind of led to this ident- political blackness as an identity taken up by people of colour from various communities, which is still partly alive in today's anti-racist movements, which opens up, again, the question of what does race look like in the UK? What do we mean in the UK if we were to say Black Lives Matter? And we're getting some background sort of stuff because we've been making, making a podcast about the movement for about three months. Yeah. Once again, as Nat's guest, at the end of May 2016, I was invited to a historic event in which a Black Lives Matter co-creator was visiting the network's first UK chapter in Nottingham. So we've just got to Nottingham. Thank you. Thanks. co-creators of the Black Lives Matter Network. Um, And it's a real honor to be here with y'all. This is my first time to the UK. And y'all, I'm just, I'm speechless, uh, which is new for me. (laughs) Um, I helped to create a network, and I'm just like you. I'm somebody who was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And had no idea that when I was popping off on Facebook, Um, that anybody else was watching. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it for that, I was trying to process. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I woke up the next morning and saw so much energy around this this demand that our lives matter, Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't even aware that it was going beyond my circles, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's so powerful to be here with you all because this is the vision. This is what I prayed for, yeah? Um, and really excited to know that there is Black Lives Matter that's operating here in the UK. We're on this path together. Um, We may not be in the same physical space, but I really do deeply believe that victory is on our side, um, that we are on the right side of history. Um, And I know that, right, because every time I go to a place and folks are organized like this, I'm like, yo, we're going to (laughs) win. That's just all there is to it. you mentioned earlier that I was overwhelmed. Um, they have studied this movement. It's very clear. They've been studying um, the network. They've been studying all of the other organizations. They've started to think about how um, you know those principles apply in their particular context. And they've also started thinking about what's different. Um, and just the um, the love and the energy in that room was so powerful. It was moving to me. Um, and that's really the vision for what we're trying to do in the first place. And so um, I, I don't know, I still don't have words for what that felt like, but um, it was really, really powerful. It was really powerful. 
Yeah, I mean, my hope is that um, that this network will actually flourish into um, many different institutions, organizations, that it becomes its own ecosystem uh, that has really uh, contended for power and won. That we'd be able to tell a very cogent story about um, what the conditions were in this period, you know, with, um, you know, at least in the United States, it's every 28 hours a black person is murdered by police or vigilantes. Uh, in places like Brazil, it's every six hours. And so my hope would be that, we, that we've made a significant, a significant dent in that, that that's no longer true, that there are more people that get to live until their elderhood, you know, and get to see old age. Um, and that, you know, fundamentally that the way that we understand um, the value of black lives has shifted. And so this is a historic moment for us, right? That we are getting to know each other, that we're building together. When I look around this room, like my heart sings, right? And then I think about, you know, Bill O'Reilly, who's like, I'm going to take out Black Lives Matter and... You know, Black Lives Matter hates these people and those people. And I'm like, nah, look at this room. The context of the conversation about police accountability has been irrevocably changed. The African-American community is not just making this up. It's, it's real. And, and there's a history. And we have to take it seriously. Now, this time, Black this Lives Matter reporting on those terrible those events were uttered by a in Dallas. In Dallas. We're going to hold. Now, protests Policing against police have continued into the weekend, while at the same time, the city of Dallas... is a legitimate issue that we've got to address. ...has done more to move the needle on reforms in the criminal justice system than elected officials and community leaders all over this country. It couldn't really get more dystopian, could it, than people watching the assassination of a black man by the police live on Facebook um, and it has shook people to the core all around the world but particularly in the US um, we're seeing our Black Lives Matter family rising up and having to organise and do mass direct actions. When we say Black Lives Matter it's really important that we hear the names you know Mark Duggan and Sean Rigg, Leon Patterson, Kingsley Burrell, Sarah Reed, Joy Gardner, Cynthia Jarrett, Cherry Gross, Sheku Bayou, and Julian Cole. It's really important because every morning we wake up to black deaths in the UK as well as in the US. So Black Lives Matter as a politic gives us a framework for action and also a blueprint for practice. We're listening and we're organising and we're connecting and we're building. And that's a very powerful thing. We have nothing to lose but our chains! We have nothing to lose but our chains! Because Black Lives Matter has resonated around the world, we've seen a whole swathe of direct actions across the UK that have been led predominantly by young black people who have been um, shaken awoke, you know, by what they saw. And they are, yeah, they're angry and they're passionate and they can feel their blackness um, and the love that they have for black people and they want to change the system. 
Further information about all who feature in this episode can be found at www.theglassbeatgame.co.uk. And whilst you're there, why not subscribe for free at the top of the site to ensure you get next month's episode, which will be a dissection of the relative attitudes towards sex work and human rights, both in the UK and in rural India. Your presenter for this episode has been Will Hood, the episode producer, Matters of the Earth, and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Bead Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production.